Okay, great. It's really good to have all of you here. It's really good to uh, see some uh, old faces back again as well. Good to see uh, Jamie here. Um, so today we're going to be looking at this passage. And I think if you could think about it this way, you know, often uh, you see advertisements on TV. I remember watching the, the latest ones, you know, about that guy, Gerard Butler. You know, he's always talking about how, you know, I've got to put on my Hugo Bosch in the morning, you know, to make me feel like a man, right? Have you all seen the ad? You all don't want to go to cinema enough then. But you can sort of think about it, right? You know, like the advertisements tell you that, you know, in the morning you have to splash on your Hugo Boss aftershave. And then you slip on your, you know, Manchester United football jersey. Uh, then you wear the, you know, you carry the latest gold iPhone 6. Uh, then, uh, you know, you put on your Tech Hoyer watch or you put on your Nike shoes and your... Oakley sunglasses, and then maybe if you're a lady, because you know you can't relate to what I'm saying, right? Then you know you have to put on your Donna Karen dress, you know your Armani clothes or your jeans or your Ferragamo shoes. I have to ask my wife for all these things. I don't know these things. You know then your Gucci bag or your Frank Muller watch, and then your your Chanel shades, right? Why why do we do all these things? Why do we put on all these items, right? Why do we dress like that? Why do we put on these things to look good? But you can look good in Giordano. Why do we have to do these things? I think part of the reason is because these things, in a way, make us feel significant. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel that we are somebody. So we dress like our sports stars. We carry the handbags of the models. We put on the perfume of the celebrities. Because all of us, in a sense, want to feel significant in life. We want to feel as if we are important. And I think in life, we don't like to feel insignificant. We don't like to feel unimportant. And we want to feel as if we stand for something. Now, I think in the, today's passage, unfortunately, it brings us back to earth in terms of who we really are before God. Now, over the last few weeks, um, I don't want to spend too long on this because I know you get really bored. But to give you the background again, right? That at the beginning, all of us are sinners. Okay, I think we all agree with that. We are all sinners in God's holy standard. Every one of us is a sinner. There is no one in the whole history of mankind, in every part of the world, no one has reached God's standard of holiness. We are all sinners. And therefore, it says that God will punish all of us. But in God's grace, He has sent Jesus. And because of Jesus, God has poured on Jesus the punishment that has been due to us. If we believe in Jesus, it tells us we are brought into union with Jesus into the kingdom of Jesus Christ the Son. Now fundamentally, over the last two weeks, we've looked at another issue. Not a universal issue, but a very specific issue. And the specific issue was, why is it in the Roman church there were so many Gentiles but there were so few Jews. What does that say about God's promises? If He made those promises to the Jews, to love them, to care for them, to save them, then why is it so few of them are saved? And what does that mean? Does that mean now that the promises He gives to us in the book of Romans, does that mean that those promises are unreliable? Does that mean that God is not trustworthy? So, last week and the week before, We saw it from God's perspective that God only intended to show mercy and compassion on a remnant. Okay, it was a remnant theology. God only was all along had meant to save this remnant. 
Last week we looked at it from man's perspective and we saw that Israel herself was culpable in not being saved because she rejected and rebelled against God. So look with me in the last part of uh, last week's chapter. Okay, so chapter 10, verse 21. Okay, you got your Bibles, chapter 10, verse 21. It says, Concerning Israel, he, God, says, All day long I've held up my hands to an obstinate, to a disobedient people. Alright, so God had held out his hand, offered up salvation, but Israel has said, No, thank you, we are right. And remember, we also saw last week that uh, Paul himself says that he was sent, he was sent to preach so that people would hear, and when they hear about Jesus, they would believe, and when they believe in Jesus, they will call on Jesus. And how beautiful are the feet of those who come in the name of God, right? But unfortunately, uh, God was calling out to his people, but what happened? They all said no to God. So this week, the question then continues on from chapter 9 and 10. And the question is, in verse 1, I ask then, did God reject his people? Okay, so remember, it started from God's perspective, man's perspective. Now it goes back to God's perspective again. I ask then, did God reject his people? And the answer is, by no means. Absolutely not. And here, Paul gives two reasons why God has not rejected his people. The first reason is himself. By no means. I myself am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So the first example is users of himself. He says, God did not reject his people. God's promises did not fail because I am the concrete proof of that. If you want to see an example of God's promises being faithful, God not rejecting his people, then Paul says, look at me, I'm a Jew. And not only am I a Jew, but I am the descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, he's not just saying that he is an ordinary Israelite. No, no, I'm not just like the Israelite next door. But I'm the real deal. I'm from the tribe of tribes. I'm from the line of Abraham himself. It's a bit like someone saying to you, you know, hey, you know, are you Chinese or not? You don't look very Chinese. You know, you're like, uh, you look like a bit mixed, right? And then you say, no, you know, you know who, which line of Chinese I come from? I'm, my, my great-great-grandfather was Emperor uh, Qing Shi Wang or something like that, right? You know, I'm not some sort of ethnic minority. I'm the, the true Han, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, I am pure ethnic, cultural, racial Jew of Abraham. And I am saved. So God has not given up on his people. The second thing he says is, in verse 2, is that don't you know what God, or what God in Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, for those of us who are not familiar with Bible stories and uh, Bible passages, this comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. And what happens in 1 Kings chapter 19 is a really fascinating story where the prophet Elijah 
engages in a very, very amazing battle with these prophets of Baal. So what he does is, he challenges the priests of Baal and says, okay, let's have a test, right? You guys are all false gods. I'm the real, I'm serving the real God, the real deal. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have this test. We're going to have these altars, right? And we're going to soak the wood in water and we're going to see which God answers us to start fire in this water-soaked wood. So then the, the, the prophets of Baal, they try all sorts of things. They shout out to God. They cut themselves. They bleed. They cry. And nothing happens. And then the prophet, Elijah, prays to God and God sends down fire from heaven and he starts the, the, the flame. Now how did God's people respond to this amazing miracle? Right? Do you think that they all bow down before God and they all worship God and say hallelujah and reject the Baal? But they didn't. When you read 1 Kings 19 instead, the queen of the time tried to kill Elijah. And all the people turned away from Elijah and they went back to Baal. And Elijah, in his great frustration, calls out to God and says, God, what are you doing, right? Here you've done this great miracle, showing your glory and majesty. You've, you've, you've lit this fire. You've discredited all the, the priests of Baal. And look at your people. They have not turned back to you. But God said to Eli, Isaiah, sorry, Elijah, that I have 7,000 people that you do not know of who have not bowed the knee to bow. So these two examples are examples of where even though visibly you can't see God's people turning back to God, but yet Paul says, I'm still faithful to God. And in Isaiah's time, there were still 7,000 people who were still faithful to God. And again, it's the idea of a faithful remnant. A faithful remnant of Israel who still call on God. And that's why in verse 5 it says, So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on words. If it were Grace would no longer be grace. And that's what's happening here, right? If you look at this diagram, there's a remnant. Okay, and where do the remnant come from? The remnant come by God's grace. It is not because they were more special, they were more authentic, they were more real Israelites, but it's because God was gracious to them. But the second question now is asked, isn't it? The second question is, well, what happens to the rest of Israel? Why is it they are not chosen? And God says this very, very controversial thing in verse 7. What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elected. The others were hardened. Hardened. That's shocking, right? Because in a sense we may not be so offended by God when we say, ah, God save you because God is gracious. God save you because He's loving, right? You're part of the remnant. But you know, the other people, they chose to go against God. But what the passage actually says is, God Himself hardened the heart of the majority of the Jewish people. He hardened their hearts in two ways. He gave them a spirit of stupor 
It's like they were drunk. They were drowsy. They were sleepy. So when God's word came, they didn't pay attention. You know, it's just like, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're sitting in the sermon, you're getting a bit tired and sleepy. You can't hear what the preacher is saying, right? Well, God says that he gave a spirit of stupor to the Israelites. So when they heard the gospel, when they heard Paul preaching, when they heard the good news of Jesus Christ, they were too tired, too sleepy, too drunk to understand. But not only that, he goes on to say that secondly, their table has become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. You see, what should have been something like a nourishing thing? You know, when you come to the table, you expect food and blessing and enjoyment. But instead, the table of Israel has now become a trap, a stumbling block, where their backs are bent under the weight of God's judgment. But that's not the end of the story, right? Because the hardening of Israel does not mean, does not mean the end of Israel. In verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now what a strange thing for Paul to argue, because we would never think this way, right? But what Paul is actually saying is, he hopes that Israel, seeing all these Gentiles coming into the kingdom, being part of of God's people, that they would be envious. They would be like a, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who has been jilted by uh, their uh, lover. To see them going out with someone else and then realize, oh, you know, they were actually the ones that were loved all along. Right? So, if you think about it, this is the argument, okay? So the Jews rebel and their place is taken by the Gentiles instead. Well, the, Paul says that when the Jews see these Gentiles coming into the kingdom, these Jews will be provoked into envy. And at the appointed number of Jews, then God will be glorified. Now, you see, you think about it this way, right? I remember listening to this uh, pastor saying, you know, he was walking along, uh, he used to go for his quiet time in Upper Pierce Reservoir. You know Upper Pierce Reservoir, have you been there? It's super isolated, right? It's like nobody ever goes there, even on the weekend. So he was there one day, and uh, you know he's doing his quiet time. Then he saw a couple, and they were there laughing and joking away. And I think the 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 girlfriend jumped into the drain, and then the boyfriend thought it was really funny, and then they jumped to the drain. They started walking together, laughing along, and then this pastor was saying, you know, uh, you you could tell that obviously they were touring and going out for the first few times, right? Because he says, you know, if these people were married and the and the wife did that, the husband will probably say, hey, you siao, ah, trying to kill yourself, you know? You don't expect me to go down to the drain, right? Walk around with you there. But obviously, because it was the first few times going out, you know, like everything they did was really fun. And, and I was sort of thinking, you know, that's the same thing with Israel and God, you see. See, Israel had taken God for granted. And they thought that you know, God was always going to be that God. And therefore, Israel was no longer loyal to God. In, in its history, in, even in Paul's time, it took God for granted and it chased after other idols. And what Paul is saying is, as the Gentiles come in, 
He hopes that his people, the Jews, will be provoked to envy and come back to God. It's a bit like this book I was reading <clears throat> called Bleachers by this very uh, popular writer called John Grisham. I don't know whether you've read him before. The story about this really hotshot football player. And when he was uh, in college, he was a football star. So he had lots of groupies and you know, girls chasing after him, the cheerleaders. So he, you know, he had a, a, a it's, it's a classic story, you know, he had this not so good looking girlfriend and then he became very famous. So now all the cheerleaders went after him, then he, you know, he got tempted and he followed all the cheerleaders, he married them, then he had a divorce and then he became a professional football player but it didn't work out. Then in the end, I think for whatever reason, I think his parents died or something or his mom died, he had to go back to his old hometown. And he sees his old girlfriend now happily married. And the whole book is about how uh, he realizes that actually his first girlfriend was the one that he loved all along. Right? And, and I think this is what this passage is trying to say, isn't it? Because, because when God's people, the Israelites, see the Gentiles being loved by God, coming into the kingdom, the hope is they themselves will be provoked into envying them and coming back to God. The second picture is that of horticulture. Okay, so when you think of horticulture, basically it talks about grafting. So in verse 11, it talks about how Israel are the original branch. Okay, so you look at this branch, right? Okay, so we see in the MV part. So you can see in verse 11 and 14 how he wants God's people to be envious so that by their rejection, they will see how if they accept God, God will accept them back. But this same argument is used in the horticulture thing, right? Because it says here that Israel are part of the true tree. They are like the original root. Okay? And God has cut them off. God has cut them off because they have been rebellious and He's ingrafted uh, these new branches which are the Gentiles. So actually it's quite interesting if you actually go and look up pictures on the internet, what they do is they get these branches, these wild branches and they sort of wrap them don't know how they do it, wrap them to the tree and they somehow like they form back again. I don't know how it works, right? So the whole point here that Paul is trying to make is that if God is able to graft sorry, graft the the wild branches into the original tree of Israel, then surely if God's people come back, then he would the, the, the natural branches would be easier to graft back into the original tree than even the wild branches. Right, so the whole point here is that at God's timing, at God's timing, all Israel, all saved Israel will come back in. That's why it says there, right? Look very carefully in verse 25. It says there, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may become may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. So what's happening here is that Paul is trying to say very clearly that the picture of Israel is an incomplete one. That yes, all the Gentiles will come in, but God's plan of saving Israel will not be frustrated. 
Because at the right time, God's people, Israel, the right number of them will come into the kingdom. When it says all Israel, I don't think he means every single Jewish person will become a Christian. But I think when he's talking all Israel, he's talking all the the number of Israel that God is calling to his kingdom. They will all come to his kingdom. But I think more importantly are three lessons for us. Okay, there are three very important lessons for us. Because we are all Gentiles, right? I don't think we're Jews. And nobody is a Jew here. The first lesson is don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. In verse 20, it says, Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you too. Again, in verse 18, uh, oh, sorry, uh, verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. See, I think it's very important because what the point is, is if you look at this diagram very carefully, right? We are the wild branches. Israel is the natural tree. It is only because Israel has fallen that we have been able to be ingrafted into the tree of God. You see, think about it. If Israel continued to obey God, continued to serve God, what it's really saying is there will be no place for us as Gentiles. Therefore, we cannot be conceited and arrogant and think God owes us salvation. I earn my salvation. What a great person I am. I'm so lovable. I'm so great. Therefore, God saved me. It is only because Israel fell that we were allowed to be part of God's kingdom. I remember when I was an accountant many, many years ago. This must be like in the 1980s. There was an accountant friend of mine who was a Christian. And I remember he used to tell me, um, he asked me one day, we're going for lunch, and he said, what is your favorite Christian phrase? And I can't remember what phrase, uh, Christian verse. I can't remember what verse I quoted, but I said, what is yours? And he said, be holy because I'm holy. And he was really holy. But the problem was that he was also very arrogant. Right? He, was, he was always like, I'm superior to you because I'm so holy. Right? He's a, like you could sort of feel it. In fact, it's really strange because in the accounting office, nobody liked him. Because he always looked down his nose at everybody else. You know, I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, and I'm holier than you. And I think my friend failed to understand how fortunate he was to be saved. Right? To be saved is not because you are holy than other people. It is only because God was gracious to you and you took part of the place of God's kingdom in that tree, in God's holy tree. It's almost as if, you think of it a moment, right? Let's say there's a, 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 a family. Like, this is all hypothetical, so it doesn't work. But imagine there's a family and uh, it's a very powerful royal family. And the son, I don't know for whatever reason, took drugs, killed somebody, committed a crime, and so was disowned. And because this son was disowned, they were looking for another son. And they said, oh, okay, we'll get you. Right? You're a nobody, you're outside the... the, the, the but we'll, we'll bring you in. Right? We'll, you'll be some sort of foster son, right? Okay, adopted son. See, there's no place for you to be arrogant. 
And no place for you to be proud and, and conceited because you only came into the family as an adopted son. You're not the natural son and, and the natural son actually was the one who was sinful and therefore allowed you to come in. See, there is no place for arrogance. But the second lesson also is to be afraid. To be afraid. You see, look at what it says there in verse 20. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. Right? Tremble. Why tremble? If God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if you do not persist, sorry, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. See, think about it a second. I really like this horticultural thing, right? You, you learn so much from the Bible, right? You see, if you are not part of the natural tree and God grafts you into the natural tree, well, if He was willing to cut off the natural branches which were disobedient and unbelieving, then how much more the parts of the tree which are wild and grafted in? Right, imagine, right? So you got your beautiful tree out there, and then there's some parts of the tree which are rotten. Okay, so you cut them off. Now it would be hard to cut them off because it's part of the natural tree, right? But imagine then you then take these other branches from another place and you then graft it into the tree, and then you realize, hey, this graft that I grafted into the tree, the graft itself is rotten, and it is, you know, moldy, and there's weevils or whatever growing in it. Well, that's really easy to break off, right? Really easy to cut off because it wasn't part of the tree at all. So what the passage is telling you here is, do not take God's kindness to you for granted. Right? Do not take God's grace to you for granted. See, you, 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 you did not, you were not part of the tree. You did not deserve to be part of the tree. God in His grace has put you as part of His tree. He's grafted you in. If you take God's grace and kindness for granted, then if He was able to cut off Israel, then how easy would it be to cut you off? Because you actually have no part in the tree at all. It's only because He's grafted you in the first place out of grace and kindness. Make sure that you are afraid of God and continue in His kindness. Because if you take His kindness for granted then He will do to you exactly what He did to the natural branches which were rebellious. He will cut you off. And I think this is so important for us because there's so many people that I know that I've met in my time who take God's kindness for granted. God has called them into His kingdom. God has brought them into union with Jesus. They've, he's grafted into them into the tree. But they continue to sin to maybe watch pornography and are unwilling to give it up. Maybe they never pray and read the Bible and, and become colder to God. They're not serious about their godliness. They make no effort to love God. And yet these people confidently say, I'm a Christian. And they take God's kindness for granted. And I think this passage here is a challenge to us, isn't it? Because 
it says here, right, that you must continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. If God can cut off His natural branches, the Israelites, then He will cut you off too, the wild branch. The last point is, in verse uh, um, 30, um, 33, isn't it? I think it's to consider the awesomeness of God and how His plans are so unknown to us and yet He has chosen to actually show us this grace. See, I've often wondered, you know, if you're sort of reading the Bible and you're sort of, as you read it, you sort of ask yourself, where does verse 33 to 36 fit in? Why don't we just throw away 35, 33 to 36? But I don't think we can, isn't it? Because verse 33 to 36 is meant for us to reflect on how great God is and what He has actually done for us. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So you can understand God's majesty and His greatness. Who can, can be a counselor to God? Who can demand things from God? But yet God has given us this grace, this wonderful grace that He actually grafted us in to His tree. You know, I always um, go to botanical gardens when I, was, uh, when I was walking my dog a long time ago, a few years ago. And I always come across those huge trees. You know, if you go to the botanical gardens, you have these trees which are like 250 years old, 300 years. You know, you've seen those big Big trees, and I always stand beside these trees. Sometimes I, I know I'm a bit troubled when I walk with my dog, and I'm like thinking about problems in life or something. And I stand before this tree, and I think this tree was here before I was born. In fact, this tree was here before the Japanese were here. This tree was here, you know, so long. In fact, this tree will be here even after I die, and, and my problems go away. Right? This tree will still be here. I mean, God willing, right? And it makes me realize just how. Small I am, right, compared to this this tree, and and I think uh, nature and creation does that for us, right? So I I know I was thinking what's the most majestic thing I could think of. So I remember um, when I went to the Grand Canyon, right, long time ago with my kids. So I always remember when I went to Grand Canyon, I was just so amazed by how big it is and how small I was, right? And even the photographs, you can get a sense of how majestic. So this is like. Uh, you know, the depth of... You can't see how deep and, and wide it is, but this the Grand Canyon is kind of like this, right? Oh, this is my son's artistic photograph. Right? Okay, so... But it gives you a sense of how the depth... So, you know, it's like... So when you stand before uh, the Grand Canyon, you think, wow, this is so amazing. You know, it's just so... It's just so awesome. And... And I was thinking, when we contemplate the Grand Canyon or how majestic and awesome it is, then when you contemplate God who made the Grand Canyon how great and majestic He must be. And, who, and how, I don't know, one of the songs we sang a moment ago, right? We are like grains of sand. Is it the grains of sand thing? I can't remember one of the songs about us being grain, grains of sand. Anyway, um, Minka, you should remember these things because you know all the, the songs have meaning, right? Remember you said, but, uh, but how we are all like grains of sand, right? 
And I was thinking to myself, yeah, exactly, you know, we are like grains of sand before God. And it's almost as if God chose you and I out of all this whole beach of sand to save. Right? And it's like, what a great wonder it is. And how we must really thank God for His kindness and His grace to us. And how our hearts should be overwhelmed with gratitude. And how indeed we should fear and tremble before God because if God was able to cut off the Israelites and yet for whatever purpose, in His wisdom, in His plan, to choose us instead, then we must be overwhelmingly thankful to Him for His grace because there's no, you know, if you ever go to a beach, right, one grain of sand is no different from any other grain. But yet God chose us to be saved, uh, to be part of His kingdom, to have Jesus as our Savior. So I think as we reflect on this passage, you just can't get away from it. We might not understand God's plan. He has a remnant of people to save, of Israel to save, but yet He brought us in as Gentiles and He's chosen us. And we can only say to God, you know, thank you so very much because you are so awesome and we are really nothing and insignificant. But you've still chosen uh, to save us uh, in your own wisdom and your own plan. Okay. Any questions?